You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John 13, verses 18 through 30. Here Jesus continues to speak in the upper room uh, with his disciples. He says in verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, and one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him and to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought... Because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Heavenly Father, we do require your grace this morning. Should we uh, profit in understanding and should we profit, O Father, spiritually from your word? Father, may we not attempt to endeavor this alone, but may we look to you, O Father, for uh, your empowerment and for your enlightenment. O Father, we pray. We want everything that this text has for us this morning, Father. Help us, O Lord, and cause us to drink deeply from these words, from the truths and the principles that are there. O Father, make us more and more like your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. The title of this message, and I'll just give it to you now because the title may require a little bit of um, explanation. Uh, The title is a powerful apologetic, and uh, the term apologetic may need some explanation for some. What do I mean by apologetic? I simply mean a defense. I toyed around with um, calling it a powerful defense. Maybe that's what I should have called it. But uh, apologetic is certainly what I mean. Um, so uh, I'm back and forth, you know, back and forth. Why don't I just call it both, I guess? We'll just interchange the two. But what's unique about our text, and this is one of the questions I'm always asking uh, of a text when I'm uh, studying it on my own or when I'm preparing to teach or preach on it, is what is unique about this particular text? Now, what is this text doing Uh, that we don't find everywhere else. And what is interesting about this text is Jesus is giving his disciples a powerful apologetic. 
And we're going to see that um, it's, a, it's, it's actually amazing. He's preparing uh, his disciples, if you will, uh, for a, a very dark hour. And uh, in preparing his disciples for this very dark hour and recording these things for our benefit, uh, we can glean from this and we can also use this for ourselves as we go through dark hours. Um, there's a lot of people talking about the darkness today and the moments that we're in right now and the transitions that are taking place. It, it is a time of uncertainty and a time of great anxiety. Now, I also in this message, it's kind of the conclusion of this whole uh, chapter 13, at least uh, verses 1 through 30, it's a conclusion of that whole part. So I want to bring in some of the um, things that we've already looked at from three weeks ago, from two weeks ago, and I don't expect anyone here to remember what my sermon points were three days from now, let alone three weeks from now. <laughs> so if I were to ask you, what were the sermon points that I made three weeks ago? Listen, I don't expect anyone to answer, but I do expect that as I start to share them with you, you're going to have a, oh, yeah, and that's good. See, that's, that's, that's how this works. As we continually remind ourselves of these things, this is how we take this information and we begin to put it into our long-term memory. And if you go back to verse 1 with me, when we were there three weeks ago, the first thing that we noticed was the time frame. Now, before the Feast of the Passover, before the Feast of the Passover, and we saw this is the final Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry. And what is so significant about it is that Jesus comes... Not just as the Savior, but he comes as the lamb who is going to be slain. You think about that for a minute. He's the lamb who's going to be slain, slaughtered for the sins of those whom he has come to save. And we see that Jesus is fully aware of this. Of course, he's aware of this. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, look what's said next. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the end. Now someone's saying, that's right. That was the first point of your sermon three weeks ago, wasn't it? That's right, it was, love. And we could say that love's, love has a prominent place in the Scriptures, doesn't it? We could say that globally about the whole Bible. We could say that globally from, from Genesis clear through Revelation, we could say that. But there are some places in the Bible where we have those places where you can just pull off along the road and you can look and it's where, where the love of God is seen so acutely that you almost, like, you just want to pull off the road and just take a look. And this story is one of those places. I think it's only second to the cross itself. And that should make sense because we have said that the events that are taking place in the upper room here point to the cross, don't they? They point to the cross. And here we see Christ's amazing love for his disciples, his amazing love for those whom he has come to save. And it's interrupted in verse 2 uh, with the words, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Here we have betrayal is an important part of this text. And we have this idea of, 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 the, of the devil putting this in the heart of Judas Iscariot. And we looked at that verse and we said, listen, let's not conclude from this that Judas can go off saying, hey, listen, the devil made me do it. That's a commonly said, isn't it? The devil made me do it. And Lord, it wasn't me, it was that snake. 
The devil made me do it. What's being conveyed here is that Judas' activity, his activity that he's been engaged in, he's very much engaged in. He desires very much to betray Jesus for his own sinful ends. But what John wants us to see is that in the back of Judas' uh, activities is the devil himself. We could put it another way quite simply. This is satanic. It's satanic activity that is taking place here. Now, if you look at verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. We were, we've, we've discussed how this points back to, the, to John chapter 1, to the prologue. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here we see, uh, many see this as a second prologue, if you will. Uh, but the, the, the thing that we spent the most time with is the statement where Jesus is in full knowledge that the Father had given all things into his hands. Now, what is that statement? That's a statement of absolute sovereignty, isn't it? And that was the third point, or the second point, I'm sorry, of the sermon uh, three weeks ago. We have love, then we have sovereignty. Jesus says, all things have been given into my hands. Now, that cannot be said of anyone else. Up to this point in human history, And for that matter, never in human history will that ever be able to be said of anyone else. There's been many who have tried. Every generation since the fall has been full of people who have been trying to jockey for power. Our current generation is no different. What's what's really unique, I think, right now is we're seeing it on a global basis. But people are jockeying. There's people out there that want to have all things in their hands. It's never going to happen. Some will say, well, what about Rome? Yeah, Rome had its Caesars. They were very, very powerful. But not all things were in their hands. They died, didn't they? And before them, you could say Alexander the Great. And before them, you could say Medo-Persia. How about King Cyrus? Or how about Nebuchadnezzar? Or how about all the Syrian kings? Or even we could go back to David. What about David? David was a type. He's a type of the one who would have absolute authority. But he never had all things in his hands, did he? Jesus is the only one. And what do we glean from this? And this is this, this, we need to be anchored in this right now, especially as we watch the news. We need to be anchored in this, that all things are in Christ's hands. All things. Even the things that we're watching on the television. All things are in his hands. So we have his love, we have his sovereignty, and then we have the unexpected in verses 4 and 5, the completely unexpected. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing how John, John shares with us that Jesus is in full knowledge, that he is in possession of absolute authority. And then in verse 4, he rises from the supper and does what? He takes off his outer garments, taking on the uh, the... the, the, the the visibility of a slave, if you will. And he takes a towel, he ties it around his waist, he pours water into a basin, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel. Now, we spent a lot of time looking at this. This was a task that was reserved only for the lowliest of slaves. 
And I, I shared with this uh, three weeks ago, I shared with this two weeks ago, that John the Baptist uses this to illustrate the great gulf between himself and Christ. You know, John the Baptist's ministry is going strong, so strong, people are coming from all over Judea to come to John the Baptist to, be, to hear him preach and to be baptized by him. And the religious leaders, the Jews, send, they dispatch people to go out and ask John, who are you? Are you the Christ? John says, no, I'm not the Christ, but there's one among you who you do not know who's strap, whose sandal strap, I am unworthy to untie. Probably for lack of any other illustration. Would that illustration have worked? Yeah, what's John saying? John's saying that he is so great that I'm not even worthy to be a slave who would wash his feet. So it's well known in the social etiquette of the day, the only person that would do such a thing as to wash the feet of guests would be the lowliest of slaves. And what is Jesus doing, knowing in full knowledge that all things have been given into his hands? What's he doing? Out with the outer garment. He grabs a tile, pours water into a basin, and he proceeds to go around washing the disciples' feet. Imagine if you were there. Can you imagine the uncomfort that you would have with that? And in verse 6, we see Simon Peter, of course, if anyone's going to say anything, it's going to be Simon now, isn't it? He's the one who thinks out loud. That's what we come to expect from Simon, and he's true to form. Lord, do you wash my feet? You can understand this. Do you wash my feet? Jesus says in verse 7, listen, you, you don't understand Peter right now, but you're soon going to understand. And Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. And that brings us to two weeks ago. We spent a lot of time with his objection, didn't we? I mean, on one side of it, we looked at Peter. Peter loves Jesus. He loves Jesus. And he cares about Jesus' dignity. He cares about Jesus' glory. And we can see from the one side of this, we can see that this is well intended. Lord, you can't do this. I can't let you do this. I can't let you do this for me. No, you shall never wash my feet. And that brought us to uh, the other side of this. On the other side of this, what is Peter doing? He's telling Jesus what to do. He's giving Jesus a thou shalt not. You see, uh, Peter wants to do this Peter's way. Until Jesus says to him, listen, in verse 8, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And we're starting to understand the significance of this when Jesus says that. And Peter don't like the sound of that. So then what's Peter do? He says in verse 9, well, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. You see, he's still shouting orders, isn't he? But in verse 10, Jesus says to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. So much is said right there. So much is being said. When Jesus speaks, so much is being said. And this, of course, points to the cross. It points to the cross. Where are we washed? Where are we cleansed? We are cleansed at the cross. And you, you think about my, my, my cross and stick figure diagram, which I got from somebody somewhere down along the line. I've been using it so long that I forgot where I got it. Let me just say that I got it somewhere. But almost all of you have sat with me at some point in time when I've drawn the cross and I've drawn the little stick figure. And the little stick figure represents the sinner. He or she, the moment he or she puts her faith and trust in Christ Jesus, a once-in-a-lifetime event takes place. What happens? They get a bath. This is a once-for-all event that takes place. Sins, past, present, future, are taken away. They're put on the cross. Jesus takes the penalty for them. 
And then Jesus gives his perfect righteousness in that, in that other arrow. You remember there's two arrows. There's one going to the cross. There's one coming from the cross to the stick figure, to the sinner, the repentant sinner, the one who places their faith and trust in Christ savingly. Their righteousness is given, or Christ's righteousness rather is given to them. They've been bathed. And this is why Jesus can say the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And he goes on and says, verse 10, you are all clean, but not every one of you. Now, I presume there's 13 people, 13 men in this upper room, Jesus, 12 disciples, 11 of them are believers. One of them is an unbeliever. And Jesus is saying, not all of you are clean, not every one of you. Verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, when he had washed their feet, verse 12, he puts on his outer garments, he resumes his place, and he says, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should, you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. What is Jesus doing? He's giving us marching orders. Jesus is not just saying, listen, if this is not beneath me, how can it be beneath you? If it's not beneath me to serve one another this way, how can it be beneath you to serve this way? And the point of the sermon two weeks ago was the community that Jesus creates. You remember that? The community that Jesus is creating. What kind of community is Jesus creating with his love and his sovereignty and his humility? His love, his sovereignty, and his humility. He is creating a community. What kind of community? A community that loves and a community that expresses that love in humble service to one another, right? And that brings us to our text this morning, verse 18. Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you. Now, what is he saying there? What's it, what, 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 is, what is he saying there? Well, he's hearkening back to verses 10 and 11, where he says, you're all clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. I'm not speaking of all of you. I'm speaking of 11 of you. I'm not speaking of the 12th, if you will. And if you look at the words here, I know whom I have chosen. You see that little phrase right there? Now, it's sometimes hard for us to catch these. I mean, I know a lot of you are on these Bible reading uh, plans, and I don't want to discourage you. Keep on those Bible reading plans. But I'm going to give you one of the pitfalls of a Bible reading plan. In terms of a pro, in terms of a... Um, uh, a very positive. I know in, in years past when I've stuck to those Bible reading plans, I generally have read more scripture uh, every day when I stuck to the plan than when I fell off the plan. See, when I fell off the plan, I was leading, reading the Bible less. But here is a pitfall with the Bible reading plan. <laughs> Namely, when you're reading a psalm, uh, okay, this is, uh, you get in the back of your Bible, wherever, and you say, okay, what's today? Okay, Psalm 63 is today, and, and then uh, I got to read a chapter out of 1 Kings, and then I'm reading a chapter out of Matthew. Then tomorrow it's Psalm 64, and then the next chapter in 1 Kings, and the next chapter in Matthew. Now, what happens when we do that? It's harder for us to follow the arguments that play out in each individual book. That's just one of the pitfalls. See, there's a pitfall to, to everything. Um, I gen what I like to do with my reading is I like to try to read five to ten chapters a day. 
And that way, you're reading, you're reading the arguments. You're, you're reading these arguments. You're, you're seeing these arguments. And if, if we're sitting with John and we're reading John's gospel uh, straight through, which one, in, in returning to John, one of the first things I did in preparing for these messages three weeks ago was I just read through John's gospel again. It's been a while since we've been in it. I just reread John's gospel. Now, when you do that, if you go back to chapter 6 with me, I'll show you something really amazing here. Is there, you'll recall, Jesus is feeding the 5,000. He miraculously feeds the 5,000. Large crowds are gathered around. Nighttime comes. Jesus makes his way across the Sea of Galilee. Him and his disciples are now on the other side. The crowds discover that he's gone, and they get word that he's on the other side, and they make this trek to travel all the way across the Sea of Galilee. And you look at the effort. You know, I was sharing with Donald and Alex this morning in the hallway. You know, the Sea of Galilee is not a mud puddle. I mean, it's going to take a little while to go across the sea. You don't get in your speedboat and motor across there. They're rowing across there. It's going to take a little while. It, in other words, it takes a good bit of effort to get from one shore to the other shore. And today, we'd be inclined. We see a large crowd of people going through that much effort to come to Jesus. We're going to be ready to make all these folks elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers, and we're going to have them. Look, look at this. Look at this amazing thing that's going on here. But it's not fooling Jesus. What does Jesus do when these crowds reach him? What does he do? He ratchets the teaching up, doesn't he? When we were studying this chapter, we, some of you will recall. I mean, he, he ratchets. The, he doesn't dumb it down is the point. Uh, to, point it, to use words that are sometimes used, he doesn't, he doesn't take this theologically to the least common denominator as we're so prone to do today. He's not, I could put it another way, he's not following your common church growth methodology. He ratchets this up. And your common church growth methodology is say, well, listen, you go preaching like that, uh, you're going you're gonna to run everybody off. Well, look what happens in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, what? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Could Jesus have not got the church growth books? Maybe he doesn't. He's a freshen up. I won't name any names. Maybe he ought to freshen up. If you look at verse 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Look at verse 63. It's the Spirit who gives life. What did that say? It's the Spirit who gives life. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. We have to always be on our guard that we're not trying to be the Holy Spirit. It's easy to fall into that. I've fallen into that myself so many times. We are trying to be the Holy Spirit. We make for a lousy Holy Spirit. Um, we're not very good at being the Holy Spirit. Our job is to publish the truth, to do it as accurately as we can, as soundly as we can, as lovingly as we can. But it's the spirit of his life, isn't it? If you want a true work of God, it's the spirit of his life. We shouldn't be interested in anything else but a true work of God in our hearts. And that work, I mean, Jeremiah puts it so famously, can the Ethiopian change his, his color of his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? You know, I'm not an expert in world religion, but those who are experts in world religion tell us that 
This is one of the things that's unique about Christianity is where world religions basically give you these things to do. You make this pilgrimage and you reach Mecca or you make this pilgrimage and you reach Nirvana or you do these certain things and you check off all these steps and you arrive. Whereas Christianity says, you know what? You're powerless. We don't like that. You're absolutely, completely powerless. You might as well just try to change the pigment of your skin than to try to convert. You're powerless. What's Jesus saying? He's saying it's the spirit of his life. The flesh is no help at all. We need to be saying this more often. Expect resistance when you say it, but what does that create as people start to say, wait a second, what do you mean? You're powerless. What do you mean? You want me to prove you're powerless? Go be perfect this afternoon. Just do it for an afternoon. Just want, your wife will love you. Just do it one afternoon. You can do it for a couple of hours, can't you? Be absolutely, completely perfect for the next half an hour, the next 45 minutes. Can you do it? Even as redeemed believers, we can't do it, can we? We're powerless. But look what Jesus says next in verse 63. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. The power of God is in the gospel. The gospel centers on Christ. The power of God is preaching Jesus. Our role in this is to preach Christ, to preach him crucified, and it's the Spirit's role to give life. And in verse 64, Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one comes to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. Again, another statement saying that we're powerless. But after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Before I go any further, talking about this powerlessness stuff, if you come to Jesus, he'll never cast you out. That's verse 37 of this great chapter. We always remember that, and especially remember that when you're sharing that with people. You're powerless. But Jesus says, if you come to me, I will not cast you away. You always want to balance those two things. Some will say, well, um, uh, so you mean if I come to Jesus, if you come to Jesus, he will never cast you away. But back to verse 65. This is why I told you that no one comes to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. After this, look what happened. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is what the church growth people said would happen, isn't it? And it's what happens. And it's to, to pragmatic Americans in the 21st century, this just seems wrong, doesn't it? But let's let our minds and our hearts be guided by Scripture, not 21st century American pragmatism. Jesus, is not, Jesus doesn't have to give reports to the presbytery uh, writing down how many nickels and noses there are. He doesn't need that, right? Now, I'm being a little bit playful here, but... Um, this is a tough word for us. Now, look what Jesus says in verse 67. He says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? So I see everybody's picking their toys up and they're going home. How about you guys? Do you guys want to go home? And this is where Simon Peter answers. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. It's the words of a true believer. This is the words of a true believer. And that's because it's the work of God. 
As, as human beings, we can draw big crowds. As human beings, we can fill places up if we want to. If we adjust the tenor of the message, if we adjust it so we can scratch ears, if we adjust it so we can do these things, we can, people are capable of creating big and large crowds. But you see, this is not what Jesus is interested in, is it? It's not at all what he's interested in. Now, look, look what's going on here. Look at verse 70. Jesus answered them. He goes, did I not choose you, the 12? Not the 11. You see, it says 12. Say, so wait a second. Now, we see you're, you chose 11, but one's not a believer. Jesus said, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the 12 was going to betray him. Now, when we're reading, when we're reading sections at a time, if we're reading uh, 10 chapters at a time or six chapters, eight chapters at a time, we come across these kinds of things, and then we go to chapter 13 and verse 18, and Jesus says, I knew who I am chosen. And our minds go back, yeah, we've encountered that. I know who I am chosen. But the Scripture will be fulfilled. The Scripture will be fulfilled. Yes, the scripture will be fulfilled. Namely, Psalm 41, verse 9. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. You see, there's a purpose in this choosing of the 12. It's not willy-nilly. It's all part of God's work. Now, we could scratch our heads and say, well, what is Jesus up to? What, what could possibly be the meaning of this? Verse 19, Jesus answers us. He says, I'm telling you this now. Before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Now, let's, let's unpack one more thing here, and we'll put this together. Notice the words at the very end, I am he. I'm convinced that Jesus has Isaiah in mind as he says these things. There's a couple places in Isaiah we could go, but I, I, turn with me to Isaiah 43. As you're turning there, I'll start just unpacking the first 10 verses here where we, we read the words in verse 1, Isaiah 43, verse 1, but now thus says the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. We're accustomed to seeing that that means that the covenantal name is being translated. You see the capital letters. Thus says the Lord. That is, thus says the great I am. Right? He who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am always with you. I bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, 
Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand what? That I am he. In the Greek translation of this text, we simply have hati ego eimi. You know the word ego. Everyone in this room knows the word ego because it's the word we get the English word ego from. Ego simply means I. Eimi is a form of the verb to be. Uh, we could say I be, but we don't talk like I. If you say I be, that's not correct English. We say I am, don't we? We say I am. Now, if you go back to John 13, what is Jesus saying here? In the Greek, he's literally saying, hati, ego, me." He says, that I am. I am telling you this now before it takes place so that when it takes place, you may believe that I am, is what he is saying. The Spanish version of this doesn't have the word he in it. It just says, que yo soy. Right, Dylan? Que yo soy. That I am. So the point in this is so that they will believe that Jesus is the great I am. Now, why wouldn't they believe that? Because Jesus is about to be betrayed. And the disciples could easily come to the conclusion uh, because of the nature of this betrayal, that how could Jesus not have seen this coming? How could he have not have seen this coming? One of the 12 betrays him. How could how, how, the fact that the disciples didn't see this coming? If you look at verse 21 and follow, we're going to skip verse 20 for right now. That's a whole, that's a whole nother sermon. But I look at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, testifying, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. You see, Jesus is really heartbroken over this. This truly breaks his heart in terms of his human nature. He is torn on this. Because he is suffering the betrayal of a close friend. That's painful, isn't it? Any of us who have been betrayed by close friends know how that painful that can be. In verse 22, the disciples look at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Matthew 26 tells us they're asking this question, is it I, Lord? They're doing this self-examination and they're actually becoming fearful. Don't tell me I'm the one that's going to do this. They have no clue who it is. Oh, please, Lord, don't tell me that it's me. And the interesting thing is Jesus doesn't whisper in there and say, no, 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 don't you worry about it. It's not you. He leaves them in that state. And there's a lesson in that for us there. We really do. Self-examination is a part of this text. We really need to be examining our faith. How many times in John's gospel have we come across the word believe only to discover that those who are believing are truly saved? It starts all the way back in John chapter 2, doesn't it? I say, Rick, that's a little scary. Yeah, it's a lot scary. We need to examine her. They're asking, say, Lord, it's not I. Is it I? Who is it? Who is it? One of the disciples in verse 23, whom Jesus loved, this is John, he is reclining a table. You see that? He's reclining a table. What's that mean he's reclining? He's got a lazy boy and he's leaning back. 
actually, we've all seen the picture, the famous picture of the white Jesus in the middle and all the white disciples to the left and to the right. And they're sitting at a long table. This is why we don't do pictures of Jesus, because this is a creation of an artist. They're not sitting at a table. They're actually laying down. They're, they've got one elbow. Their left elbow is on the floor. And they're laying down with their feet spread out away from the table. And now they have their right arm to move around. The ancient, ancient texts tell us that, that this was their custom at these kinds of things. They're laying down with their, their left arm. If you can imagine, I mean, I don't want to lay on the floor, but if you can imagine laying down on your side with your, with your elbow supporting you, your torso kind of like this, and now you've got your arm, and there's a disciple here, and then around the table we go, feet all outstretched uh, opposite the table. That's the, that's the position they're in. John is reclining at table at Jesus' side. Presumably, John is in front of Jesus. So here's Simon Peter. We don't know exactly where he's at, but he's somewhere where he's able. See, Simon won't open. He's not opening his mouth, but he can't, he can't help it, can he? He's making motion. He's making a motion for, uh, uh, for John, and he's saying, listen, uh, uh, find out. Ask Jesus who it is. You're closest to him. Ask Jesus who it is. So if you look at verse 26, uh, verse 25, uh, John leaning back against Jesus. He's on his left-hand side. Jesus is behind him. All he has to do is lean back. And when he leans back, Jesus is going to be right here. And he's going to be able to ask him. He's going to be able to ask him in such a way that no one else is going to be able to hear what they're saying. They would only see that he's asking Jesus something. And he asks him, verse 26, Lord, who is it? And Jesus says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. That's cryptic, isn't it? So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, this is really scary, verse 27. Look what this verse says. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. That's just, um, what does that mean? William Hendrickson puts it this way. He says, what you have now at this point is a fully, thoroughly hardened individual. You see, for the last three years, Judas hasn't been resisting the one he should have been resisting, and he has been resisting the one he shouldn't have been resisting. You follow me? He's been resisting Jesus. How many times did, John, did Judas Iscariot hear the gospel preached? And was he waiting for a better preacher? I mean, you poor folks are stuck with me. He had Jesus. Could there have been any imperfections in the sermons that he heard? Could you imagine the sermons that he heard? But he resisted the gospel. He resisted the gospel. He resisted the gospel. And he, he played along like he was a believer. So much so that everybody, everybody, they had no idea who it could be that would betray him. They really didn't know. D.A. Carson says that at this point, Judas is completely possessed. Now, notice what Jesus says to him. He says, what you're going to do, do quickly. Who's in control here? Jesus is in control. 
Verse 28, now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. Look at that last sentence, and it was night. I take the position of many commentators who say this is not just a reference to the time of day that it is, but it's a reference to darkness. This is darkness. And that's the point. Jesus was preparing his people for the darkness. You see, in a a matter of a couple of hours, Jesus is going to be betrayed by the betrayer. He is going to be tried. He's going to be executed. Within hours, he's going to be hanging on a cross. The disciples are going to be scattered. Peter will have denied him three times. But on the third day, on the third day, what happens? Jesus is raised. And as Jesus is raised, the disciples, especially as the Holy Spirit comes, the disciples are now able to start making sense of this apologetic that the Lord has given him. Imagine the disciples. Imagine being one of the disciples and Jesus being betrayed, carried off. What in the world's going on? Now you discover it's Judas who just betrayed. Here Jesus has been betrayed by one of the 12. How could Jesus not know this? Is he really the Messiah? For surely the Messiah would have known that he had a betrayer in the mix. And to us, it seems that we should have gotten rid of him all along. He's been stealing money out of the money bag. Should you continue to allow him to be the treasurer of this thing? Jesus does. And that's prescriptive, by the way, not descriptive. We don't want thieves being our treasurers. Um, It's important we understand that on the side. But Jesus displays that he's in complete control, even of this betrayal, doesn't he? And then what does that do as we make application of this? Just just for a couple of minutes and I'll close. Look at the control that Jesus has when it looks like everything is coming apart, when it looks like everything. Think of the disciples, you know, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're all downcast and they just think it's over, don't they? If you want to read that story this afternoon, read Luke Luke 24 this afternoon and read about the two disciples on the way to Emmaus. They thought it was over. Because it looked bad, didn't it? We've just seen Jesus crucified. Now he's in the tomb. Now what are we going to do with this thing? And Jesus starts appearing to them. Starts appearing to them. And then he ascends. And this small group of disciples begin to preach the gospel throughout the world. And then the gospel comes to the likes of us here in Chester, West Virginia, 2,100 years, 2,000 years later. Isn't that amazing? Well, that's a good place to stop. What do you think? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this powerful apologetic. I think, I think that's the best way to put it, Father. You've given a powerful apologetic that these disciples would be able to say, wait a second, now Jesus, Jesus said he would be betrayed before he was betrayed, and he told us that he was telling us this so that when it took place, we would believe that Jesus is I am. Oh, Father, this morning, here we are 2,000 years later, and you've given us the same, that we may believe that you are Yahweh, that you are the great I am. Oh, Father, we so thank you that you've given us Christ. And oh, Father, we pray, especially as we think about self-examination this morning, Father, let us ask ourselves this question, are we growing in grace? 
Are we growing in grace? Oh, Lord, if the answer is no, if we're falling backwards, we're in danger. We're in great danger. Oh, Father, we pray. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'll gather your people. Gather those, oh, Lord, those who are falling. Gather, oh, Father, those who do not know you, oh, Lord. Help us to make this great announcement, oh, Father, that, that you are he. And, oh, Father, we thank you, oh, Lord, for the grace that we receive from your words. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.